Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. Welcome back to our classroom. Today, we have a guest, Martha R. Bereda, PhD, a writer, lecturer, a living history performer with over 30 years of experience as a lecturer, consultant, and trainer for issues related to race, class, and gender issues, working with educators, law enforcement, and business and civic leaders. Currently, Dr. Bereda is a writer, lecturer, and living history performer, and the director of the Blanchard House Museum of African American History and Culture of Charlotte County, located in Punta Gorda, Florida. That's right, folks. We're still doing this work in Florida. Believe it or not. Believe it, all right? Not going anywhere. And Dr. Martha has a wealth of experience to share with us. I think it's important for us to to learn from and with individuals that have a lot more experience, have more wisdom, have been through some things so that we could draw from their experience in history and also apply to what's happening in the current day. And so today we're talking about to grow in Jim Crow. That's right, to grow in Jim Crow. And so Dr. Martha, thank you for being here today. What a pleasure. Well, Roberto, thank you so much for inviting me. It is my pleasure to be with you. Well, let's go ahead and dig right in. You you published an article titled Reflections of a May Queen. And in that article, you mentioned the term colored and the Jim Crow era. Could you explain mm-hmm. what it meant to be colored during that time? Uh, and how did these labels impact your sense of identity and your understanding of your place in society? All right. If you were designated as colored, you were the other. You were considered to be less than human. Your qualities were considered to be inferior to that of whites. So it was all an inferiority to put that colored label on us. In terms of the identity, We got those external societal messages. The Jim Crow era, they were always there. And basically what they were saying, you know, the segregation was meant to say you are less than. The discrimination, you cannot go here or there. You are less than. Everything was meant to show the difference between whiteness and blackness. We were simply called colored. Now, a really key word here is place, Roberto. That is the key because the place, and you would often hear when I was growing up, well, they're they're not keeping their place. Our place as colored was at the lowest level, the lowest rung on the social racial hierarchy that had been created. And on that hierarchy, if you wanted to survive, if you wanted to keep your job, you had to, with I, I, I have two terms, one a perfor- performance identity and one is an authentic identity. 
Well, in order to keep your place so that whites felt good about themselves, you had to use your performance at dinner to, ah, yes, I keep your head down, take your hat off. But by the same token, when you came back to our place, you had your authentic authentic You were a human being. So that whole thing with, with colored was to dehumanize us. Mm, wow. That must have been quite the the challenge to to live through in terms of constantly switching and and fighting through the notion of your place, right? Because and you you, you mentioned the word to dehumanize us. Hmm. We should all be able to sense uh, our our experience our own humanity in any space and place in, in which we dwell. And yet you were living through that experience. And, and your description of the veil coined by Du Bois highlights the perception of Black intellectual, cultural, and, and moral inferiority. How did this myth affect your education and personal aspirations as a young girl? All right. I, from my family and from my community. And it's very important, Roberto, that I mentioned community because when I grew up, I grew up with a community reinforcing everything that I'm going to say to you. I write about my experiences as a colored girl, right? But it is the lessons I learned that if anybody takes anything from this, this is what I want them to take. These lessons I learned in my home and they were reinforced in my community. There are two sets of them, denials and affirmations. First of all, I am not tragically colored. I got that from Zora Neale Hurston. In fact, I was in DC on Monday for a presentation. The barber who was Dr. King's uh, barber said, we weren't saying. They had agency during, even during Jim Crow. Roberto, there was agency. We were not thinking of ourselves as victims. I know what it sounds like. So I'm not tragically colored. I These were rules I learned now. I am not who, who the largest society believes or says I am. I'm not that. I am not inferior to any race or group culturally, intellectually, or morally. In fact, I've read in enslavement the elders said we are morally superior because we don't treat people inhumanely. Hmm. And I am not the other who they claim that I am undeserving of respect, dignity, and equality. Now, those were our denials. Now, this is who my family and our community let us know who we were. I know who I am. My community said this to me. I am a precious gift to my family and my community. Roberta, our community made me and us feel that way. And I am a member of a dynamic culture that provides for my resilience, my well-being, and my joy. Now, this last one is, is real crucial here. I am born with unique gifts and talents that I will use to better my community and fulfill my life purpose. We had a purpose. Our community, the, in, the grown people in my community, Roberta, were responsible. The community, they were responsible for encouraging us 
and holding us to certain principles. So those lessons that I gave you were not just from my house. They were from all of the adults that surrounded us. And that, if I, if I must say, is something I think we must bring back, is that sense of community that I, as a colored girl during Jim Crow, I felt that. That's why I told, why I could be who I am, because of that. So you feel like we've deviated from the sense of community? Robert, Roberto, not feel. I know we have. There's this individualism that has taken place. And I know we, we have many people who are doing well. But if you think about what we see in the news and everything, it's an individual, individual, individual. Individual success does not mean that the group has come along. Individuals have benefited. The masses of our people still have some difficulty. So we we have come to believe in the values of the larger society. I was in a, when I was in D.C. I'm in a taxi with a, a Nigerian taxi driver. First of all, he's pointing to buildings. You know all those buildings in D.C. He says, "You know where those were first, don't you?" I said, "Mm-hmm." In the three empires in West Africa, but he said to me, he's a Nigerian. He said, "We must go back to who we." We are, we are one. We are a collective society. We are not to separate ourselves. And so, Roberta, I've seen too much moving out of the neighborhood, not coming back, not bringing everybody with us. And so I didn't mean to give a lecture on that, but that's that's how I feel. No, no, that you know, we're here to unpack all of this. It's certainly relevant to what's happening today and to things that we need to wrestle with not just as individuals, but as a community. You and I can tell you um, probably, well, I'll tell you the story a little later. It's about me as a as a 13-year-old. I'll tell it to you later. Go on. Well, I, I'd like to hear about your upbringing. As you mentioned, being involved in attending poorly funded schools and experiencing <laughs> segregation in various aspects of your life. Can you All share right. some specific instances or memories that stand out to you from this period? Okay, yes, sir. Uh, my my mother had a heart defect. My father was from Virginia. And so when I got 10, we moved back to Ponte Gorda. I went to school in a little four-room white frame building. We had three teachers. Each teacher, it only went to sixth grade. Each teacher had two grades. We had a room that was supposed to be a library, but that was where we had our cafeteria. That's where the lady, we ate our meals. Our bathrooms were outside. So each teacher had two grades. Roberto, there were no resources for us, hmm. but our school was central to my community. I mean, central. You know, our teachers only made half as much as the white teachers. Wow. But the way they had a mission and the way that they moved. And by the way, each of these three teachers who were poorly paid a master's degree. OK, so I'm in the school, no resources, but we're central to our community. And let me say this about my colored school, segregated school. My teachers made up for the loss, the lack of resources. I can come say on. that. honestly. Come on, come on. 
they focused on what I call now a pedagogy of empowerment. Yes. Okay. They focused education for us. Everything I heard from my family, from my school, from my community now was on education. Education was the key to our racial uplift. Education was the key to any kind of equality that we were supposed to have. And it was also something that we had to do to give back. That was our destiny. And so when, especially when I went to high school, now my high school was a, a new high school because one of those schools they built when they thought uh, all the colored people were going to go to integrate the schools. So it was it, the, the building was very nice. However, in my uh, biology class, we had a lab. We had one microscope, okay, for all of us wow. in the class. Oh <laughs> microscope, goodness. okay. But let me say this. I got three things, important things, from my education in general. Competency. Our teachers didn't play. When I started working, I, I saw that kids could sleep in, my kids that looked like me could sleep in class, could do nothing. We didn't play. And when I was in school, there was no such thing as suspension. There's the Board of Education, but there was no suspension. Competency. That was the first C. They pushed us. The reason that I can have an essay right now is because my English teacher, Miss In Miss Daly, saw that I had, may have had a gift for writing. And in our county, they even let the colored kids enter the countywide contest. I won two of those because Miss Daly did not ask Martha Russell if she wanted to write. Miss Daly said, you will write. If somebody was smart in math, they gave them more lessons. If you were brighter than other students, you had to tutor others. So competency, we had to learn. Second was confidence. They instilled in us, honey, whatever somebody says about you, you show them who you are. I'm telling you, my generation, we can show you who we are. Okay, confidence. But the third thing, which is very important, Roberto, was the commitment to excellence. We had to learn that we were three or four times better just to make it in society. So if you see one of us somewhere my age, honey, we'll show you who we are. We are excellent because it was drilled into us. We had no choice. We had no choice but to be excellent. Hmm. That's beautiful. I, I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier in terms of not feeling sorry for yourself uh, and, and people from many folks from that time period who didn't feel sorry for themselves, didn't see themselves as victims, which I think it's important. I, I definitely uh, support the notion of not seeing ourselves as victims. And I also wonder about how you and others navigated still fighting for, advocating for things such as reparations or or other basic uh, rights or demands of of restoration and, and repair. Um, and, and reparations is, is not just a, a financial thing, right? 
But nonetheless, the, the notion of, hey, there's something here to be restored uh, because of harm that was caused. Roberto, I'm going to tell you, quite frankly, during my growing up, that was not one of the words that I heard. What happened was that we had two separate societies. And if you look at what happened during Jim Crow, we had over 200 vibrant African-American cities. We had educational institutions. We created them. We had societies. What happened? And you take somewhere like, I'll take my town, Ponta Gorda. Okay. We had the white society. But I, of course, wasn't born then. But in my little town of Ponta Gorda, which you passed by in 1927, honey, we had 20 colored businesses. Colored people work for colored people. Color people rented from color people. So what we did, we did not focus in in the that particular aspect of Jim Crow. It came later when the soldiers came back from the Second World War, okay? When we got a Brown versus Board. During that period, we absolutely put our energies into creating our own communities. Mm. That's why when the barber for, for Dr. King said, he actually said, he said, we weren't saying They were doing their thing. And that is a key because what I'm feeling right now is a return to that period. And so we can either oh, hope that they do something for us or we can start doing it for ourselves. And may I say something about Florida and this education thing, okay? Yes. We can either... All right, we're we're going to sue, okay? About you know the little nonsense that unfortunately a Negro said was true. We have uh, this nonsense. We can wait for the court, take two or three years, or I'm going to say to people who are listening to this, do like they did when I was in school in Jim Crow. Do you think that our teachers? didn't teach things other than what they were supposed to teach to keep mm -hmm. us immediate. All right. They knew how to go around this. So what I'm saying right now is, okay, while we're in court waiting for this in our churches, you have Sunday school, have Saturday school, teach your own history, teach African-American history. Don't start with slavery. Start with the three, the places that we came from in West Central Africa, they had three empires. Start with that. We don't need, see, my generation did not wait for them. They did not wait for them to teach us about ourselves. In my school, they went around all of that. That's why I can be who I am, because they did not wait. Okay? They did not wait. Tulsa, yeah, they got so angry and so jealous, they burned it down. But do you think Tulsa, you couldn't go into the department store? Child, they build a department store anybody in the world want to go into. You couldn't go to the theater. Look at the theaters they built. Look at the schools they built. They did not wait for anybody to give them anything. They took what they wanted and they made it for themselves. And that's where I am now, especially I'm very concerned about the school situation and very concerned that we're just going to sit and be angry when we should be every Saturday, we should be teaching African-American history.
every Saturday. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go on the election. No, no, hey, you know this. This is what we're here for. We we're here to talk about it all. Um, don't just teach mm-hmm. Sunday school. Teach Saturday school. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, and, and Roberto, I, one of the the issues that has to have you asked me about the the culture. When I was growing up, all of our churches, they had their separate, you know, religious theories, but. For the community, they all came together. What I see now is more territoriality. For us to save our children, we, our churches, are going to have to come together for a community, not a religious purpose, for a community purpose. That's what's going to have to happen. Can't have territoriality. We have to come together as community. Solidarity. The Africans tell us that. The elders tell us that. We must listen to our ancestors and our elders. Well, we got to kick down the walls of division. Thank you, sir. That's that's a key for you today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's part of the aim is to uh, not run away from the issues. Um, certainly mm-hmm. talk about and address the issues, but find ways to address them in community and find ways to be in proximity. Uh, mm-hmm. We all come with our differences to the table, but we should be able to, at the very least, meet at the table and then take it from there, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As we're breaking bread and, and sharing insight, what uh, are the things that bring us into further proximity as opposed to focusing on the things that that drive us apart um but we have to be able to engage in these critical conversations and call Mm -hmm. a spade a spade Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. your your description of strength and love of your family members it's it's beautiful it's touching how did their support counteract the negative societal messages and stereotypes you encountered uh, can you share an example of how their love influenced your sense of empowerment? All right. I learned three things from my family in particular, self-identity, self-worth, and self-determination. Now, my grandmother, I got the self-identity from her. My grandmother, during that age now, said that doesn't mean us. Now, she didn't mean that we didn't have to obey laws. I don't know what it feels like to go to a back door of a restaurant. We would go drive 50 miles to for, to Sarasota because the store didn't let us try on clothes. My grandmother would not let us do anything to dehumanize ourselves. Wow. She said, when I said that, when she said who you are, you are a human being. You have worth. My grandmother gave me self-identity. She did not play dehumanizing yourself at any point, okay? My father, he I called him my hero. I'll make this story short. My father, who was still living in Virginia, was a truck driver for a brick company. And in this little town of Virginia, uh, the, the colored and white, they, they, especially the men, they got along, they would drink beer together and talk. And he and one of his very good friends, uh, Ferguson, were talking, and they had the very same job. And Ferguson let my daddy know somehow, he didn't mean to, that he was making twice as much as my daddy, honey, same job. Daddy went into work on that Monday morning, and daddy said, you need to pay me more, I'm worth more. They Mm. said, Don, we can't do it. 
My daddy quit that day. All right. And I came home. I felt the little thing. But my mother supported my daddy in quitting. My daddy knew his worth. My father in the middle of Jim Crow knew his worth. Guess what? Right now, in the 60s, he was hired by the Blue Ridge Job Corps as a driver. His hobby was softball. He coached the girls' softball team. Right now, in Marion, Virginia, at the Blue Ridge Job Corps, the activity hall is named after my father, who knew his worth, Alonzo C. Russell Activity Hall, on the building, because my father knew his worth. And finally, my mother, my mother knew all she self-determination. My mother was one giving back. People came to her for everything. She was known as a humanitarian and a historian in our community, but a humanitarian in the entire community. Mother didn't wasn't into that, the first Negro, the first to do this. My mother just did what she did. And guess what, Roberto? Right now, there's seven women on murals in my town. Guess who one of them is? My oh. mother, Bernice Russell. Oh, that's amazing. Bernice Andrews Russell, because she did not let anything stop her. I'm talking about Jim Crow. Mother did not let anything stop her. So my father said, honey, no, I'm worth something. I'm somebody. My grandmother said, I know who I am. My father said, I'm worth something. And my mother said, I don't give up. Honey, those three things my family taught me. What a legacy. What a legacy. Well, I have to tell you. And can I, can, I, can, I, can I tell you my little story now? You sure can. Okay. All right. I'll tell you about my mother. My mother decided to want to become Catholic. She and I and several other uh, colored people, we were uh, baptized at the white Catholic church. That my whole first whole communion was me and three other little white kids. Uh, she became president of the, of the Women's Guild at the white place. All right. Because she was good. She wasn't I'm the first. She was good. But anyway, I was about 13 years old. And my mother, Alan Only Child, bragged about me the way I brag about my children and my grandson. Mm -hmm. And she happened to tell these women that I, I was 13. I had learned to type. So one of the oh, she was bragging, Martha can type, blah, 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 blah. So one of these women said, oh, Bernice, I, I really, can she come over and type for me? So mother, oh, yes. Honey, I got to that woman's house and I go inside. And I have to see this, this bucket was this this bucket of water in this rag. And I looked, but see, I had learned about performance identity. So I took it and very slowly I said, ma'am, I forgot to tell my mother something. I gotta call my mama. So she said yes. I said, Mama, this woman don't want me to type. She must be in a mop floor. His mother got in her car and came back. She was furious. But let me tell you, Roberta, I wasn't so much furious as I felt, felt sorry for a grown behind woman who was felt that I could take her place. I was a 13-year-old child. I learned something about whiteness that day, about how threatening I could be as a colored. My mother came and got me. But let me say this, Roberto, those lessons I told you, about I'm not who white society thinks I am. I know who I am. If I hadn't learned those lessons, what might have happened to me that day? I might have fallen for that and said, Absolutely. oh, no, this, this is supposed to be, I'm just supposed to be a mate. Those lessons 
honey, I, I all fucking thing. If I had learned that, I may have said, well, so tight. I learned the type so well, honey. I didn't say that. I felt sorry for that woman for frightened by a 13-year-old child. I said, Oh, I know where you come from now, baby. If my titan can take make you think I'm gonna take your place, I'm 13. Wow. <laughs> So that that was a critical lesson for me. But I said, I know who I am. <laughs> mm. and, and that's a good thing for folks to hold on to, like understanding who you are, understanding your worth. Right. You mentioned the story about your father. He understood his value. He understood his uh, his worth and, and also just learning. Right. How to advocate for yourself. I mean, you mm -hmm. you, you use the, the terms. Uh, performance identity and then authentic identity. Uh, but within that, what I see is like you understanding and having been taught by your parents and your grandmother how to navigate different situations, how to advocate for yourself, right? And in that case, making the call, being slick about it. Hey, like, hey, I'm not going to blow up. I'm not going to overreact. Let me, let me make this quick phone call. Let my mom stay. <laughs> and, and so... These are good things for us to know, for us to 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 learn from, for us to implement in our own journeys, right? It's a different time period that we're living in, but things manifest themselves in these ways, right? It just mm -hmm. might look and feel and sound slightly differently, but at the core, you know, we're talking about uh, people that are bringing their issues, bringing their sin, bringing uh, their prejudices, their biases, and sometimes their hatred. And we have to know how to combat that. And at the same time, continue to press forward, continue to embrace uh, the, the power that we do have, right? The strength that we do have mm -hmm. and the community that we do have. Mm -hmm. um, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your willingness to commit yourself to writing these articles for our consumption and also to come on my podcast and share. And so you, you, you mentioned that you don't see yourself as a victim, but rather as a realist. Can you expand on this perspective and, and how it has shaped your approach to life's challenges and opportunities? Okay. I have been... I would say, I mean, I've been determined to do what I, I want to do. I went um, to an, a predominantly white university uh, in Western Michigan. I took a course, a, a major that at the time was kind of uh, off track for African-Americans because they thought that we couldn't speak, but I was in speech pathology. And of course, there were things that happened at, at Western. You know, I was, I actually... Uh, Roberta was supposed to be a Negro then when I went up north, but of course I faced the same the same kinds of things. But the thing is, I have to say, right, I so, just so I, they were using different terminologies, but yeah. still manifesting the same type of behavior, right? Still demonstrating the same type of behavior, right? Because on of the, your skin the, color. On the way up, Roberta, my mother and my aunt took me. Right, we get to Terry Hall into Anna. We have to sleep in the car because we wow. couldn't get a motel room. Okay, I'm oh, supposed my. to be going north, right? I'm going north, right? The first march I was ever in protest while people were coming south to, to march for, you know, the freedom rides and whatnot. The first march I ever went on was in Kalamazoo for 
the the Negro students to have open housing. Okay, mm-hmm. that was my first protest. Was that? So I went through it. Of course, the separation was there. All of our social lives were very different there. I went to a white university. Actually, I went to a university of 15,000 people. Ponte Gorda was 3,000 people when I left. Okay. Mm. Let me say this, Roberto, because of that training I got, honey, I didn't miss a beat. I went from 3,000 people to 15, got my degree, was encouraged to go on to get my master's, went to University of Michigan. But that training, I, I, I really, I cannot emphasize enough the psychological thing that has to happen when you live in a society, a racist society. Mm. You cannot let anything about what they say about you matter. You have got to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way that I came from there to master's, the PhD. I knew what I wanted. And, and the little things... It didn't. You see, you can't get involved in the little things, okay? Let's say right now, and my son was very good with this. If somebody calls you, and I'll say the word, somebody calls you a nigger, you just look at them, get all, you just look at them and say, oh God, you must have a horrible life if you're envious of me and need to put me down to feel better about yourself. You have to put people whose psychological need to feel superior to you, you have to let them know you know their game and you know who you are and you are not inferior. Which brings me to something that happened last week. And I think you've heard about it when all of these black kids at this school were put in that assembly, only black kids. Yes, you I heard did. about it. Yes, of course. And told about how they were bringing down the test scores. Now, I'm just going to say this. I hope, because if I if one of those children were mine in that group, I would be taking my child to a psychiatrist and I would be suing for emotional distress because I'm serious about this. Do you know what that did to those children to be told? And they were in an environment where there were low expectations because they wouldn't be failing, Roberto, if there were high expectations. Do you know how helpless and powerless those children must be feeling? Those parents, and I'm talking about individual parents, I'm talking about as a group, the emotional, and I'm serious about this, my background is counseling, the emotional distress that must have been caused by saying, being told that you are failure and your failure is bringing out our school scores. Roberto, the psychological damage that was done to those children, I would say is almost unrepairable unless they're in, I'm serious about this, some kind of self-esteem and emotional health therapy. I mean that. Wow. I'm very serious. And I'm not excusing what was said. I, I, I think it's horrendous. But I'm thinking about stuff that you've even shared in our time here today. What if they had parents like yours, grandparents like yours, who've been instilling in them self-determination, self-worth, uh, strengthening their identity, uh, helping them combat those types of messages? Do you do you think those kids would still need to see a psychiatrist and that the damage? Not would- if they had parents who had been who listened to their ancestors, who listened to their elders, who followed their elders. 
who started to believe that they didn't know everything, who listened to their elders, their children would have gotten these messages. See, there are still some children who get the messages because right. their parents know what they're doing. Yeah, like I your children. This, the, the, the reason I mentioned this is because there was one coverage of this story in, in which the parent was talking about how disturbed she was that this happened and, and bringing it to the attention of the media. But she said her kid, her kid actually wasn't even in the group of kids that did not perform well. Her her kid actually was a strong student. So they brought, they also brought her kid up there to, to kind of make an example of like, hey, well, you all should be like these kids, uh, which is also terrible, which is also terrible. But the reason I mention this is because my sense is that there are probably some parents and some kids just like that, um, that are like you when you were a child and like your parents and who've been driving home these messages and helping their kids to understand the, the society that we live in and the things that we have to deal with as a people and how to navigate those things. And so, and, and listen, if, if some of y'all parents are listening to this interview right now, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to have you on the podcast to interview, to talk to you about this experience, but also talk about how it is that you're supporting our kids because we need more parents to, to mm -hmm. hear these messages. We need to build up the resiliency in our kids and we need to push back. We need mm -hmm. to, we need to yeah. fight back, push back. And you, and you certainly mentioned one way to do that, you know, bring them to get the support, get the psychiatrist and then sue. Um, Emotional distress. But, but yes, we, we need to put pressure on these school officials. Mm -hmm. Like, how is this susceptible? Where is this susceptible in, in, in any other space, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's not acceptable in our space either. We're, well, we're not one, thing, one of the things like the, the parent who's done her job, I, I, I'm going to just ask her right now. You see, let me let me tell you this. When I started out, we had moved from Gainesville, and my son had been recommended twice to be in the gifted program. We get to second grade to test you. So we went and told these folks, they slowed, they didn't test him. And so we went again. We lost his record. So my 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 husband was working at the university. So they knew what was coming next. We were going to have my son tested. They finally tested my son, Roberta. He tested higher. The psychologist told me he tested higher than any child they had tested that summer. But let me tell you why I'm telling you this story, Roberto. That changed my career focus. You see. I couldn't just care about my child. Yeah. My child was going to make it. That's why I spent the 20 and 30 years, because I did it for other African-American children. So those parents from that school who have done the right thing for their child, they need to go to those sisters and brothers and say, look, this is damaging to your child. Let us talk to you. Let us get a group of parents. Let us work with our children. Let us get community again. Maybe it's just your neighborhood. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let us off the hook for this, Roberto. Right. Giving back. That's what my mother did. See, Absolutely. I learned my mother, if you're doing well, it's not individuality, Roberto. It's not about individuality, it's about collectivism. That's right. I am because we are. And if my child is doing well, I 
have a remember I said obligation when I was growing up? Yes. Folks had an obligation to help all of our children. And so those folks whose children are doing well, you have an obligation to bring the others along too. An obligation. That's right. That's right, folks. You heard it. We have an obligation. Let's commit to that. So to those that are listening, what is a me- I mean, you just told us we have an obligation. And you can stick with that. But if you have another message of encouragement, you want to offer them what what what's the message of encouragement you like to offer? Okay. First of all, I we need to remember. Okay. I, I do a thing called remember and return. And if you don't remember, go to some of your elders who were went through Jim Crow. Ask them how they manipulated Jim Crow. And they'll tell you they played that game, okay? They had to say yes or yes up. And they got to church on Sunday, top deacon, all dressed up. The ones who were the maids, they get, they're the mothers of the church. So these games. But let me tell you what was different about growing up Jim Crow. You see, during that time, we had a very definite line, divine. So you could do over there in that white society and come back and be perfectly yourself in the colored society. It's a different now the mixture. See, we, we could get certain lessons at our school because our school was all black. So what we've got to do is determine how we can still do these lessons with our kids, but we got to do it probably within our own community, okay? We need to, in terms of our schools, we need to ask our kids what's going on. Honey, does your teacher think you're smart? How does your teacher show you you're smart? If your child stops for one minute, tell me how you, how your teacher treats you. How does she treat you? Don't ask just about your child. How about so-and-so in your class? How do they get along? Who gets in trouble in your class? How come they get in trouble? You need to find out what's going on in the classroom. If your child or any other child is in a classroom where low expectations are held, that teacher should not be teaching your child. All right, what I'm saying is talk to your children, talk to your children's friends, come together as parents so you can know what is happening to your children. That's the first thing. We got to come back to community. We got to come back to those values of solidarity, of working together, of giving back. Education is the key. And, um, What's his name from uh, from South Africa said it could be a weapon to change the world. But guess what Stalin said? Stalin said it's a weapon depending who's using it. So we can use education as a weapon for empowerment, or we can let them use education, which they're doing, as a weapon for disempowerment. So we need to get on this thing with our young people. We need to know what is going on in those schools. I'm talking about the environment, just not the teaching of Black English, Black's history. So we got to work on the environment, the history teaching, which you're going to do ourselves. You're not going to wait for other people to teach our history. And we need to start grooming our young people. So this means togetherness. This means collective. I guess the basic thing I'm saying is stop this nonsense about individuality and just being for yourself. Let's let's come back together as a people. All right. Thank you for sharing. Let's come back. So there was 
one question I forgot to ask you, and I'll, I'll ask it now. Mm -hmm. If you had the opportunity to have <laughs> lunch with any individual that lived through Jim Crow, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Okay. Anybody ask me about my family in Pontegord? I said, we've been here since 1885. And we're here because my great uncle, Dan Smith, was 17 years old when he came. He could not read and write, but he was chosen to be the leader of the survey team for the railroad. You know, they come in and decide where the railroad should go. After they finished the work, 200 colored men came and laid the track. But this young man, my great uncle, was a leader. He was the leader of this group. Guess what he did? The first church service ever held in Ponte Gorda to celebrate the, the, the fact the train was coming. This, this kid, this kid, he organized it, put it under a thatched hut. And guess what? All the, all the people came, white and colored came to his little organization and they kept meeting in his little hutch until everybody got their own church. Dan Smith started our Bethel AME church. He, his wife, my aunt Louisa did not, she was a, a Baptist. She didn't want to go to Methodist. He started the first historic Baptist church in Ponte Gorda. He was sent, he was appointed to the school board to go and get our first teacher. Now, he did learn to read and write. And one of the reasons how, when we got our school, he and another man, Sam Kennedy, sat in classes with children so that they could have the quota. He was a businessman. He had his own boat, the Dan Smith, did excellent. He had an orange grove. He was a mathematical genius, okay? He knew something about himself, okay? Two of his daughters, were top math teachers in the state of Florida. Three of his grandsons worked for NASA. So if I could meet anybody, I'd meet, I'd want to meet him when he was 17. Because I'm telling you, that period during those those years, we know what it was like. He was so self-determined. Nothing stopped him. It didn't matter about segregation. It didn't matter about the Jim Crow laws. Dan Smith knew what he wanted. And nobody, nobody stopped Dan Smith from doing what he wanted. He was, and he was well respected in this town because he stood up like a man. And so he stood, in fact, in the cooperation of Ponte Gorda, four African-American men helped incorporate my town. He was one, he but didn't sign the papers. He was one of the leaders of the blacks who took them to Pine Level to have, do the signing. He was just, he just did what he wanted to do. He did not let obstacles outside stop him. He understood who he was. And he, he was a child of enslaved people. His ancestors must have told him, you got something going. He listened to his ancestors, Roberto. He listened to his elders. He did not. Do you think that Dan Smith felt like a tragic color man? I mean, seriously, does he, everything that man did, his own boat, Orange Grove leader, did he, was he tragically colored? I don't think so. Mm -mm. That's great. Mm -mm. That's great. Thanks for sharing. 
So for folks who are interested in reading your articles and following your work, where should they go? They can go to meer.com, put my name in, Martha Beretta, and I have lots of articles on there, but the ones that right now that I'm most interested in are Reflections of a Color Girl. Those are the ones. Also, if you uh, go to wgcu.org, it's in Fort Myers, and put in Reflections of a Color Girl, you can hear me reading some of these as well. And so uh, I, I guess those those would be the two places. But let me let me tell you to do this. Go to BlanchardHouseMuseum.org. And we're closed now because of the storm. But we do have some exhibits on there. Take a look at our, our museum. All right. So, um, Roberta, I've, I've certainly in, enjoyed. Didn't mean to go <laughs> crazy on you. But these things. No, not at all. This, this was. No. No, no, no. This this was enriching. And again, it's important for us to, to hear from our elders and hear from those who have had different experiences. Let me make one final point. Remember, the governor says, and the reason the legislature does not want accurate African-American history told is because of the emotional distress it would do to white children. Mm. So emotional distress right now in general, is a key word. What would be the emotional distress to African-American children if they didn't hear accurate history? If they had to only hear, if they didn't hear about resistance to slavery, if they didn't hear about revolts or rebellions, if they didn't hear about people escaping, coming to Florida to be free, becoming Maroons, if they didn't hear about people becoming aligning themselves with the Creeks, becoming Seminoles. What would that do to their emotional distress if they didn't hear any stories of power? So I think emotional distress is kind of a important thing right now, Roberto. That's emotional right. distress. You get me, right? I get you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time. Thanks for your time, Dr. Martha. We'll have to do this again. I know you have plenty to share and going to continue to read your articles and, and share them and, and pick your brain and receive your insight. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, for resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.